This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, logging came near the village of Zyra in Solomon Islands once before. Now, the villagers are fighting yet again to protect their pristine rainforest. Our streams and rivers have polluted, and all our marine resources have also been affected. And scrutiny has been on Australia for ramping up its defence funding in the region, but for Vanuatu's finance minister, the spending is welcome. We believe that uh, that renewed focus and defence to Vanuatu is important. And we head to Tonga to find out what the opening of a new US embassy holds for the country. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First though, outrage has erupted on social media over a TikTok video posted by the daughter of PNG's foreign minister on the way to the king's coronation. Savannah Kichenko attended the event last week as part of PNG's official delegation, funded by taxpayers. Images of luxury airport lounges and expensive shops have sparked fury among citizens, but the foreign minister has vehemently defended his daughter. Marianne Farr with this report. Move with me overseas. So I literally packed my whole life into these two big suitcases. I'm so proud of myself because I... Lavish meals and luxury brands may seem fit for a king, but for viewers in Papua New Guinea, it's a royal slap in the face. It's completely offensive to the people of Papua New Guinea and the suffering that we're going through. It shows complete contempt for us. A TikTok video was posted by Savannah Kachenko, the daughter of PNG's foreign minister, as she packs her bags and jets off to London to attend the coronation of King Charles III. In it, she flaunts cocktails and delicious meals at first-class airport lounges and luxury shopping brands. So I'm travelling with my dad and our first stop was Singapore and we checked into the first-class lounge where we had some Cosmos and some yummy food. Then we did some shopping around Singapore Airport at Hermes and Louis Vuitton. Those of you that know, Singapore Airport shopping is honestly so elite. Also, how stunning is this? But back in PNG, citizens like Tanya Bale are outraged. There's just a big disconnect with what I'm seeing in this video of super luxury and, you know, enormous wealth and expense. And you contrast that with how our people actually live. The social justice campaigner and former election candidate says the video is out of touch and she's not alone. It's received widespread backlash in PNG social media circles. Some, like lay resident Lawrence, say taxpayer money spent on the trip could have gone towards helping ordinary people in PNG. We could use the money for, you know, improve our services and delivery to the country in, in places that are suffering. About 40% of Papua New Guineans live below the basic needs poverty line, according to World Bank data published in 2020. But Foreign Minister Justin Kachanko has fired back, defending his daughter against what he calls haters. She's absolutely traumatised by these primitive animals. I call them primitive animals because they are. Mr Kachanko says his daughter attended the coronation in the place of his wife, who couldn't make the event. She has done the right thing for her country to travel with her father, representing this country, 
and she did it without fear or favor. And then to be hit by this, all this rubbish, you know, jealousy is a curse. You know, these people clearly show that they have got nothing to do in their lives other than to put down people that want to do something good for their country. The ABC has contacted Savannah Kachanko for comment but hasn't received a response. Her video has now been taken off TikTok. Local media reports state the coronation cost PNG a total of almost 6 million kina, which included an in-country celebration attended by Prime Minister James Marape. Mr Kachenko said he could not confirm reports that up to 30 other people also travelled to London from PNG with the Governor-General, Bob Daday. My trip from foreign affairs is completely separate. He says taking his daughter to the coronation was completely justified. Yes, it was paid by government funds because it was an entitlement that was put to me. It's not the first time PNG has been criticised for spending on overseas trips. In 2021, the government faced backlash for spending approximately 6 million kina to send a large delegation to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. But in Justin Kachanko's eyes, this latest trip was worth every cent. We had a fantastic coronation. Papua New Guinea was represented at the highest order. The king was so impressed. That was Papua New Guinea's Foreign Minister Justin Kachenko ending that report by Marion Farr and Belinda Cora. Villagers in Solomon Islands say they'll fight to prevent an Australian-owned company from logging in their pristine rainforest. The people of Zyra have fought for years to protect their customary land with the help of scientists who describe the area as a precious relic of untouched biodiversity. But late last year, a company was issued a permit to conduct logging operations there. And records show an Australian man became the sole shareholder and director of the company not long afterwards. Liam Fox reports. Solomon Islands is addicted to logging. For decades, it's been the country's biggest export earner, despite repeated warnings from its own government that the rate of logging is unsustainable. But you can't hear any chainsaws around Zyra Village on Vanganu Island. Community leader Hans Gino wants it to stay that way. Well, our livelihood depends very much on the resources we had. Several months ago or years ago when logging took place close to Jaira, our streams and rivers were polluted and all our marine resources have also been affected. The Zyra people's customary land is a 1,500-hectare corridor of pristine rainforest stretching unbroken from the coast to the island's mountainous interior. It's home to a rare species of bat and a newly discovered giant rat. And the coast is a rookery for the critically endangered leatherback turtle. University of Queensland environmental scientist Dr Simon Albert has helped to document the area's ecological significance. Unfortunately, the rest of, of the Solomons and in fact the rest of Melanesia's, you know, been heavily impacted by resource extraction and we're left with these little remnants like Zyra, which are just, you know, precious relics of what the whole place used to be like. So it's incredibly important. The people of Zyra have tried for over a decade to have their land declared a protected area, off limits to logging and mining, but the national government has knocked them back. They've also seen off several attempted incursions by logging companies. 
The latest is coming from a company called Doma Vola, owned by Australian man Thomas Crawford. Here he is speaking on a video recording of a community hearing back in 2015 to discuss the allocation of timber rights. Logging represents 50 to 60 to 70 to 80% in certain areas of the income. We are a new company here. Why not give us an opportunity to do something positive? Back then, he was representing another of his companies called Renown Surf and Cargo. Let's do something positive. Sitting on the edges and saying nothing and doing nothing will not achieve anything for anybody. Hans Gino says Mr Crawford's been trying to get onto their land ever since. He doesn't care about us. If he respected us, he should come to us uh, and, and we should have a good conversation, a dialogue, and look at a sustainable kind of development instead of logging. In November last year, the Solomons Environment Ministry issued Doma Vola with a development consent, an important step on the way to start logging operations at Zyra. When the company was incorporated back in 2021, Mr Crawford was not involved. According to the Solomon Islands Business Registry, it had four founding shareholders. One of them was longtime MP, businessman and timber industry figure Bodo Detke. Another was the former Premier of Western Province, Wayne Mapio. Records show Mr Detke transferred his 25% stake in the company to Mr Crawford's outfit, Renown Surf and Cargo, in August last year. Then, after the development consent was issued, Renown came to be the only shareholder and Mr Crawford the only director. Mr Crawford, Mr Detke and Mr Mapio have all declined to comment about Domovola or why they sought to log at Zyra despite local opposition and the area's environmental significance. Dr Simon Albert says the situation shows authorities favour loggers over locals in Solomon Islands. The economy, the whole you know, legal structure of, of logging timber rights is, is set up in the favour of, of extractive um, logging companies and, and people find it very hard to, to protect their land. In fact, they've been striving for decades to try and get some level of legal protection from their government over this unique piece of land. Gino Hands and his fellow villagers have lodged an appeal against the decision to issue a development consent to Domovola. Whatever the outcome, he's adamant no one will log the forests around Zyra. We had a slogan. Our slogan is, we will keep fighting for our land to protect our land. No retreat or surrender. That was Zyra community leader Hans Gino, ending that report from Liam Fox. And Pacific Beat also approached the Environment Ministry in Solomon Islands about Domovola's development consent, but a spokesperson said they can't comment because of the legal appeal. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Vanuatu's finance minister has welcomed Australia's pledge to spend big on security in the Pacific region. In its federal budget, the Australian government has committed to deliver to delivering almost $2 billion over four years to Pacific projects. Most of it is set aside for security. It's set to include boosts to defence and police training, cybersecurity assistant, assistance and to Australia's Pacific Patrol boat program. Money to build infrastructure like ports has also been set aside. Some commentators say such spending is simply Australia's attempt to counter China in the region. But Vanuatu's finance minister, John Solong, says he welcomes the support. Very welcoming. Thank you for Vanuatu being part of the Pacific and being the focus of the Australian budget. Obviously, uh, we are in a situation where there's geopolitical competition 
And uh, as neighbors of the Pacific, it's very important to continue to work together. Over the past few years, uh, Australia has focused some on Vanuatu in relation to the construction of the VMF camp in Vanuatu. It's going to take a few more years to complete. And so we believe that uh, that renewed focus and defense to Vanuatu is important. And uh, it's a good direction to go to go in. Uh, also welcome the fact that uh, DFAT is getting a bit of an increase, which is uh, really good. So in terms of um, the security aspect, nearly $1.4 billion will go into security such as training police, building ports and these sorts of issues. Do you think that's a fair distribution? As you know, in the recent past, Vanuatu has been hit by two cyclones and uh, the response from the Australian military in terms of assistance was quite uh, critical and and it was very useful. So we believe that uh, if it's in not, uh, you know, not necessarily in terms of uh, uh, being prepared for war, but being prepared for climate change effects, that's all very good because it takes, it took the military to come in and assist in this past uh, disaster that hit for not. There hasn't been a major announcement in regards to climate change, um, but we had, obviously, we had that special budget in October last year. Are you concerned about that? Well, I mean, everybody who is part of the sponsoring of the Vanuatu's motion and the floor of the UN General Assembly for an ICJ ruling on that. So we, we got the support from Australia in that as well. So a big conversation on climate change. I, I leave it to the Minister for Climate Change to comment on. But in general, I'm, I'm happy with the uh, focus that we heard that is part of the current budget uh, in Australia. The um, Australian government has said that they consulted with Pacific leaders on what their priorities and needs are. Has that happened? Do we see that in the budget? In Vanuatu, we very, work very closely with the uh, Australian High Commissioner. She's very consultative and very inclusive. So, yes, of course, the budget process is uh, an Australian sovereign parliamentary process. But uh, the comment on uh, the focus so far is we think it's good. What would be your priorities? I'm, I'm aware that, for example, the patrol boat was uh, damaged during the cyclone and it's been returned to Australia. So uh, repairing that and returning it would be very important because it's a very important tool in our marine surveillance. So, yes, the ability to uh, get assistance from Australia to make sure that we manage our uh, EEZ and also the police training is really important. You know, uh, we got hit by a, a cyber attack on the 5th of November 2022. And, uh, you know, we have to make sure that, one, we build up robust systems to protect ourselves. Two, we have to also um, find ways to, um, say, have insurance. I've been asking about insurance for against cyber attacks. So these are elements that we have had conversations with various groups around, but... Uh, Yes, if Australia is announcing that it's assisting with cyber security, uh, it would be very welcome in Vanuatu. And that was John Salong speaking there to reporter Dubrovka Volodair.
Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I don't think it was wrong that he said that he didn't want to come to the Dragons. Truth is, players have preferences. As a player, if I was asked, you know, the five Super W clubs here in Australia where I want to go, I know what my first preference is and I also know what my last preference is. Which is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not about to be on rugby.com tomorrow. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. From across the seas and right around the region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sport and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our team of trusted reporters bring you everything Pacific and nothing that's not. Join me, Talia Olatia. What matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch the Pacific Thursday nights at 7, PNG time on ABC Australia. It's time to find out what's making news around the Pacific. And to do that, we're joined, as always, by producer Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now, let's head to Papua New Guinea. There's been a lot of talk about this USPNG defence deal. Looks like um, that will be signed when Biden visits later this month. Um, is that right? Yeah, well, that, that's according to uh, PNG's Foreign Minister, Justin Chathanko. Um, so this is reported by uh, Reuters. And according to the article, um, he actually said that a defence corp, what's called a defence cooperation agreement between the US and PNG was finalised last week. All they've simply got to do now is sign it and they'll do that once Mr Biden arrives. There was a bit more to it as well. So the documents that have been sent to US Congress also state the US will double its development assistance to PNG to $32 million, as well as pledge an extra $25 million to, to tackle climate change. And uh, and finally, from what I understand, there'll be a separate agreement to allow the US Coast Guard to patrol PNG's vast uh, economic zone. And uh, that'll, that'll allow PNG officials basically to get on board as ship riders. So, yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. Get on board Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard ships. That's Very right. interesting. Um, yeah, and I guess it comes from an interesting time. We just heard earlier in the show from John Salong, Vanuatu's finance minister, con- commenting on Australia's, I guess, the the, the billions going into um, security, uh, just over one billion, I think, one point four billion, going into security in the Pacific over four years, announced in its budget. And it sounds like very similar things. You know, things to, to monitor, like exclusive economic zones. Um, I know they the Australian government hopes to use some of that money to combat things like illegal fishing. So it seems like all all every all the foreign countries want a, a bit of this Pacific security pie at the moment, hey? <laughs> yeah, it very much sounds like it. And uh and yeah, look, I think it's gonna be a pretty good trip uh trip for Biden in general when he gets there later on. I know he's got, got a sentimental attachment to PNG given he did have an uncle that that passed away there uh in the Second oh, World really? War as well. So yeah, I didn't actually know that. So yeah, no, I think it'll be uh yeah, a, a big deal for both countries. Yes, yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, yes, and I guess a bit of a connection, personal connection between uh, President uh, Joe Biden and, and Papua New Guinea as well. 
Um, now let's head to Tuvalu. Um, it's joined forces with Sea Shepherd Global, um, which um, many many people might know, well, at least I know from their whale hunting, or not whale hunting, <laughs> anti-whale hunting, I should say, um, expeditions in the ocean. Um, but this time with Tuvalu, it's going to try and com- combat illegal fishing. How exactly is that going to happen? Yeah, so the Tuvalu government has signed a, a memorandum of understanding uh, with Sea Shepherd Global, the, the company, I guess, who are the overarching body behind that company. It's And yeah, like you said, they're a oh, marine... An NGO, I believe they NGO, are. NGO, yeah. So a marine conservation organisation who are actually based uh, in the Netherlands, but they seem to have ships scattered everywhere, one of which is in, in Melbourne, which I've seen out in, out in Williamstown. It's done, done a lot of work in Australia. And uh, and together they'll be combating uh, illegal, uh, illegal and unregulated fishing in Tuvalu's waters. So under the MOU, um, the ship's actually called the Allen K, and it will accommodate a detachment from the Tuvalu Police Service, so kind of similar to what we just heard uh, with the PNG in, in the US, and uh, apparently they'll actually have the authority once on board to inspect and uh, and arrest um, people who, from other fishing vessels who, who they believe might be doing the wrong thing. Yes, yeah, very interesting, um, because I, I do know illegal fishing across the Pacific is a very um, concerning um, activity. Obviously, it means that Income is is instead of flowing into governments is is co- or governments in the countries um, is is going out. Um, I know there are things I think they're called uh, black fleets, dark fleets, mm. where they turn off their monitoring services, which means you can't actually detect the ships and see what waters they are and and where they're fishing. And it also means that you know this illegal fishing might mean they're overfishing and that things aren't really kept up to scratch, that they're not missing meeting all those environmental you know um, labor. Um, records and, and standards as well. Um, so yes, very interesting to see this happen, isn't it, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you mentioned that uh, that that dark vessel just before. Apparently, this uh, this uh, the, these sh- these sea shepherd vessels they actually have the the capacity and the technology to stop that as well. Oh, they really? can actually yeah locate them, I believe, through some sort of radar technology or something like that. So um, so yeah, that's, it might might help them out a little bit more on, on that in that regard. Yes, very interesting. And and I will repeat, like it's very interesting to see. Sea Shepherd, which has been um, sometimes criticized for its activities, particularly, um, you know, Japan, the government of Japan has has criticized um, Sea Shepherd for the ways it goes about some of its, um, like I said, anti-whale uh, hunting um, vessels. Um, they can, they, they, they were sort of built on, on being aggressive and being, mm. you know, the protectors of the ocean. You can see it in their flag, which almost looks like a pirate sort of skull and bones. Um, yeah, sort was of there emblem. a TV show about it at one stage? On yes, like I think so. Cable network back in the day? Yes, yes, you might be right. Yeah, so it is, it it does have that like sort of look of being quite mm. um, quite vigilante in some instances. Some would say um, so. Interesting to see it joining with the government in in this case, mm. um, and and yeah, perhaps taking things in a new direction. Um, so we will see if if what what will what will come of this, and if they actually do end up um, making making impact and stopping illegal fishing into Valu's waters. Um, and now let's head to Vanuatu. It's lifted the minimum wage, at least for the private sector. How much is it going up by? Yeah, by a fair bit. So from June 1, the minimum wage will increase by 36%. Uh, um, so this is reported by the Vanuatu Daily Post, and it's, it's been a long time coming too, apparently. So under the law, the minimum wage should be reviewed once every two years. However, due to the pandemic, it hasn't moved for the last four years, obviously meaning it hasn't kept up with inflation, and, and as a result, it's, that's really impacted living standards. And do you know what, what the existing minimum wage is in Vanuatu? 
I'm not actually quite sure, but um, but I know it's uh, at the moment fifty six percent. It's uh, it's it's oh, sorry. Thirty-six uh, percent. It's it's quite a lot, and it's actually reflect. It's that's been reflected within the business community. Some of who are uh, up in arms about it, given it is such a such a such a, a wide number. The Vanuatu Chamber of Commerce, uh, they've expressed some some uh, some concerns about it, saying it's mm. gonna, actually going to have some a bad impact on businesses recovering from the pandemic. However, the government said uh, the increase is simply based on the consumer price index, and uh, and one that's got to be done simply to stop that brain drain of workers um, from heading overseas, given that. Uh, yeah, they obviously weren't being paid enough in some cases. Yes, yeah. Well, I just had a quick um, Google, but I'm not sure how accurate this is. Um, it says that the Vanuatu's yearly minimum wage, this is from minimumwage.org, I don't know where they get the um, information, is um, $5,000. This is an international currency per year, um, which is which is not, not too much. Um, Another another place says um, that the minimum wage of every worker is shall be increased to um, eight eight thousand five hundred vatu per month, which is um, also not very much about eighty five dollars um, Australian dollars. Um, so that was from the government of Vanuatu saying that. So this increase, yeah, comes at a time I guess when inflation and and all those things is is being talked about around the world, particularly here in Australia as well, cost of living crises. So um, I wonder if this rise, as you said, is controversial from some members of the business community, but might be good for for regular citizens, right? Oh, I imagine so. I mean, thirty six percent. Yeah, that's it's it's more than other governments have uh, <laughs> have done around the world in recent years. That's for sure. For sure. So hopefully it uh, it moves the needle. Indeed. Well, Carl, thank you so much for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. And coming about, uh, coming up in the show, we'll be heading to Tonga. We've been talking about all things geopolitics, isn't Carl? But um, soon we'll be uh, finding about what the United States is doing in Tonga. It recently opened an embassy there. Um, so we'll find out what exactly that means for the country. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Efforts to protect a critically endangered endangered sawfish in Papua New Guinea's Kikori region are starting to, starting with the youngest people in the village. A new children's book that st- tells the story of Sarah and the sawfish is being introduced to schools in the region. It has been produced by the Piku Biodiversity Network, an NGO that focuses on marine conservation in Papua New Guinea. Marion Farr caught up with the director, Yolani Amapu, to find out more about why protecting this unique creature is so important. Papua New Guinea has four different species of sawfish, and globally, they're critically endangered. In our project area, people see them a lot more than usual for what other people in the world see. And so I think we take them a bit for granted. Papua New Guinea holds some of the last populations of healthy sawfish in the world. And protecting sawfish not only conserves something of great cultural and environment significance to PNG, but also holds some of the last things um, for the world. So to bring about some of our concerns, um, we decided to put together a children's book to talk about what the sawfish is, why it's important, and to connect our local communities to what's going on out in the world and to show them the significance of what they do and what um, they mean to the survival of these animals. What are some of the major threats to sawfish, both globally and in Papua New Guinea? 
So globally, you have a lot of environmental change. The natural habitat of where sawfish are found aren't like how they used to be. So, for example, one of the things that sawfish need are both the river and the sea. So they'll spend part of their life history up the river. So a big mama sawfish will travel up the river and and have their babies up the river. And then the sawfish will travel slowly down the river as it matures. And when it becomes uh, an adult, it goes out into open ocean. When we dam rivers or when development happens along a river that stops the connectivity between the river and the sea, it stops the life history or part of a very important life history of, of the sawfish, its ability to reproduce. And that's one of the many reasons um, why sawfish are impacted globally. For places like the Kikori where I work, one of the biggest threats currently to sawfish is gill nets. So we have fishing nets in the water that our local villages use to catch big fish for a fishery. And the big gill nets used for the big fish are catching sawfish as bycatch. So they don't mean to catch the sawfish um, because of the way the morphology or the way that the sawfish looks. It's got a saw for a nose. And so the saw gets easily entangled in gillnets. And so why did you decide to make a children's book as part of this education campaign? Why was it so important to get the message across to kids in PNG? We've got, my organisation has got a bit of experience doing um, environmental education for kids. We started off with books for the pignose turtle that was in decline. This is a book we released maybe 10 years ago. We realized that um, when you want to change a community's action, to change the mind and behavior of people, you have to get them acquainted with what the problem is and to get them to to realize that we have a problem. And uh, sometimes the best way to do that is through the schools because uh, schools are, is a place of learning. It's where you can make learning fun, but also where you begin the process of understanding um, what might, a problem that you might get a little bit involved in solving. So you get that with children a lot. You give them a problem and then you help them create a solution or find a solution that's applicable in their setting. And then it's like creating little minions. They go out into the world and they get excited about it and they get the village and the family excited about it. And so we saw this with um, our work with turtle conservation. And so when the sawfish came out, we said, it's normal for them to catch sawfish in nets. It's normal for them um, to see sawfish, but we need, to, we need to start getting them to appreciate what um, it means to see a sawfish, but also the responsibility that they have around saving some of the last populations of these things in the world. And often children really connect with pictures and visual images. Are there some beautiful illustrations in this book? Oh, it's illustrated by Maria and Dana, and they did such a good job. I can only draw stick people. The thing with 
with the thing with this book is it doesn't just have the sawfish um one of the things mm. i love about this book is it comes right back to the environment that um you see every day along the kikori and i think mm. along um a lot of the rivers that you find in papua new guinea some of the animals that Sarah the sawfish which is what this book is um about um sawfish but a particular sawfish named Sarah um you have her meeting animals that are endemic to Papua New Guinea you have them um conversing with animals that you know we we take for granted like um if you went to the Kikori and asked them how many sharks they have um they they just say tree the wedgefish the guitarfish the sawfish the shark that looks like a shark but when you list out all the sharks and rays of the, the gulf of papua which kikori is part of we've got 43 different species of sharks and rays mm-hmm. in a tiny little area wow and that's a quarter of what we hold a quarter of papua new guinea's shark and ray species I I hope or we hope that this book starts to get children and people and communities excited about the sharks and rays um that we have around us that's actually just part of our everyday life and we take it for granted that was Piku Biodiversity Network director Yolani Amapu creating as she said creative little minions to protect sawfish there and she was speaking with our reporter Marian Far You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. The United States has sort of opened a new embassy in Tonga. I say sort of because it was only a soft launch that happened yesterday in capital Nukuluva. Tongan journalist Marian Kupu was among those to attend the event and she joins us now on the line. Good morning, Marian. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, Bianca. I'm okay, thank you. Um because I want to know what happened during the soft launch yesterday. Was it a big fanfare for the event? No, actually Bianca yesterday was just a very small soft uh flag raising opening just to mark the 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 coming of uh, the United States embassy to the Kingdom of Tonga. It was um Uh, attended by the deputy chief of mission Antoine Grubel from Suva Fiji which is um he's also the deputy chief of mission in Suva and uh he attended the ceremony this uh, branca um yesterday was a reflection of the US commitment to expand and deepen their cooperation over the years with uh with uh, the kingdom of Tonga and it was only less than a, a one year after vice president harris mm-hmm. announced their interest in establishing an embassy here in the kingdom of tonga at the pacific island forum in fiji so yesterday was the marking of the beginning of the relationship very interesting marin uh, between the, the countries yes because yes, is, has there been much of a relationship between the countries before this i mean what 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 is the relationship between tonga and um and the united states well we can go back to 
Yes, we can go back between uh, the United States and Tonga. We can go back in history to 1886 when uh, Tonga hosted the U.S. military forces during World War II here in Tongatapu. And uh, it deepened later on when they established a diplomatic relations in 1972. So this is um, between USA and uh, Tonga. They have been friends and had, they have had made partnership throughout the years. But yesterday was the actual physical, um, you know, relationship coming into life with, um, with the establishment of their office here in Tongatapu. Now, um, Marion, I know, I know the United States, they've, you know, Tonga is just one of a few different Pacific embassies that are opening as part of, as you said, um, the announcement made last year. Um, now, I, I understand that you, U.S. officials have been working hard to find the right spot, to find the right location. Often these things are very important for the diplomats who will end up, you know, being and working out of these embassies. So can you tell us, does, does the U.S. embassy have prime position? Where exactly is it in the capital? Um, Brianka, you were breaking up, but I'm going to see if, um, if I heard you right correctly in regards to the relationship. Um, the, this office is located in, in the Reserve, National Reserve Bank of Tonga, um, fourth floor, which is, was formerly the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs office. Um, it's very secure. They also, um, also announced yesterday that this is just the beginning. Um, they will be working on security wise and also, um, installing, you know, the technology and also the, the computers and everything for the visa for the council services. So it will take time. They also have confirmed but not have uh, stated a date that it's later on in the year that's when the grand opening of the full services of the embassy and um, we will have our own head of mission here in Tonga. Oh wow well that's very exciting. Um, What do people there in Tonga hope that the U.S. embassy will achieve? Well this is an this the establishment yesterday was a frequent request from the Tonga government to the United States government um, in terms of uh, visa services. Mm. Because normally everybody here in Tonga that, that wants to travel to the U.S., they will have to go to Suva to apply um, for a visa, whether it will be accepted or declined, but the costing of traveling from Tonga to Suva, we were talking about uh, accommodation and whatnot, mm. and also having a week or even two, some they stay for months, you know, reapplying, reapplying um, for the visa. And then the heartbreaking thing for the Tongan people is at the end of the day, the visa application is declined, Mm-hmm. You know, and having to to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to apply for a, a, a visitor's visa to the U.S. Now, with the establishment of the U.S. Embassy in Tonga, we will cut the cost of traveling to to and from Suva for the visa application. We will only have to pay for the visa application fee, um, whether it will be approved or declined. But having to cut that cost is a big thing for us here in Tonga. Oh, well, that's very exciting. I didn't realize that, Marion, that um, Tongans have to go all the way to Suva and then, as you said, pay for that accommodation, not just the flights. I mean, that must be a big burden for those who want to travel to the United States because there are a lot of Tongans, a lot of family, I'm sure, who are in the United States and people want to visit there, right? 
yes, apparently, according to statistics, there's like over 50,000 Tonga wow. everywhere in America. And um, as you have, and as if you've known, I hope you have, um, you know, <laughs> Ian Tongi is you know, one of those Tongans <laughs> having to be migrated. I'm sure they're great. They're, his grandparents and his parents have migrated to the United States from Tonga. And uh, there's a mass community of Tongans all over in the, in the United States. And uh, having to travel back and forth, we're talking not just thousands because traveling from here, Tonga to Fiji, and then if your visa is accepted, is traveling from Fiji to the United States. So we're talking about 10,000 max of uh, mm -hmm. expenditure on just going to and forth America, starting from the visa application. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I mean, when we speak about, you know, U.S. engagement in the Pacific, it's hard to overlook the context of China, Marion. A lot of people say that that's the reason there's all this investment in, in building these embassies and having a stronger relationship with the region. Um, is, is, has the Chinese embassy responded? Is there a Chinese embassy there in Nukulofa as well? Um, do we know if there might be some sparks that fly between the two? Um, you know, the U.S., uh, the Chinese embassy was established. Um, I'm not sure about the exact date, but they've been here for over 10 years now. Right. And the uh, funny thing is, Brianka, yesterday's ceremony, I've, I've noticed the UK High Commission, the New Zealand High Commission, the Australian High Commission, representative from Japan, but I didn't see anyone from the Chinese embassy. So um, that was something that caught my eye yesterday at the ceremony, um, having to attend such a ceremony, whether if it's New Zealand or Australia, you would have to see all the head of delegation, all the head of um, um, all, all the high commissioners here in Tonga, rather, to attend such programs. But uh, that caught my eye yesterday when I didn't see um, any of the Chinese embassy attending the ceremony. So I don't know whether they were invited or were they invited but never attended. That is a big question mark for me. Oh, yes, yes. Who knows? Or perhaps someone called in sick. Who, who knows? <laughs> but very, very interesting um, that you noticed that, Marion. And yes, we will see with this embassy being set up um, what that might mean for, for those relations, relations there. Um, now, you did mention, so when do we know, do we know when the embassy is likely to be fully operational and, and when Tongans can actually apply for their visas there on home soil? Um, yes. So, like like I, I mentioned before, the, um, Anton uh, Krubel also mentioned, if we have traveled to Suva, we've noticed the, the high um, security service at the embassy in Suva. So, they are also looking at um, having to establish that here in the office here. So, it will take time. Um, I also asked uh, the Deputy Chief of Mission, if there is going to be a high-level representative from Washington, D.C. to mm. attend uh, to attend the, the grand opening. And he said that they are looking into it, um, but most likely uh, they're not really sure. They can't forecast and tell, but they are looking into it. But the full services will come into action later on in the year. So I, I couldn't say when. All they, all, they, all they mentioned was later in the year, this year, 
So we're looking at um, great things here in Tonga for the benefit and um, of the Tongan people in regards to cutting costs of having to travel back and forth. And also, uh, we're also looking, um, I also asked the Deputy Commission, uh, Deputy Chief of Mission, if um, there is also other other projects that they're looking into, like more scholarship for Tonga and also aid. Um, what about climate change and development projects in Tonga? Because nowadays here in Tonga, Australia and New Zealand has been so proactive with uh, with the projects um, giving, giving to the Tongan people through the government of Tonga and also some NGOs here in Tonga in different areas, uh, Brianka. We're talking about health we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about schools and sports. As you have known, Branka, you know, Australia has been the number one supportive of our Tonga net, Netball. Uh, I was going to say, Netball the Tonga Tala. Yes. <laughs> and thank you to Australia for for, for, for supporting uh, the Tonga Netball um national team Tala, because without Australia and also New Zealand, may I may I add, um, we wouldn't reach this high level and recognition being in the top 10 in the world. So mm. right now, we are so happy that the U.S. Embassy is establishing a Tonga because we're also looking to more funding and aid and support um, with the people here in Tonga. Yes, very interesting. I mean, you, you you can only imagine where the Tala might go if they get extra funding from the United States, as well as that funding from Australia. Um, it'll be amazing to see. Um, just far, finally, Marion, I wanted to change tax a bit because we've been seeing online some international reports that there was a 7.6, I understand, Richter, um, uh, magnitude, sorry, uh, earthquake there near Tonga. Did you notice anything? Did you feel anything? <sighs> Um, no, I did not feel anything because the earthquake struck mainly uh, towards Hihifo, Nyuatoptapu. Hihifo is, um, is a village in Nyuatoptapu. Nyuatoptapu is one of the furthest islands from Tonga towards the northern side of Tongatapu, the mainland. Nyuatoptapu is closer to Samoa and Wallace and Futuna than to us here in the mainland. So um, I've been trying to get hold of anyone from Nyuatoptapu and uh, I couldn't get through on the telephone mm. um, because I wanted to see if they felt it. Uh, according to um, one of the online news I picked up on earlier this morning, that Samoa felt the shake. So obviously I'm sure there is going to be a big shake in the islands of Nyuatoptapu. And um, we can do a follow-up if I can find someone there at the moment. Yes. But uh, that's um, that's how it was. It was... It was around 5.30 a.m. Tonga time. It's um, Let me just give you a, a geographic location of Nyuatoputapu. Nyuatoputapu is towards the northwest um, of the Tonga, uh, of the mainland Tonga Tapu. And okay. um, it was, it, it's pretty far from Tonga. They're closer to Samoa and and Wallace than here to Tonga. Okay. Well, I mean, hopefully um, you can get in touch with them and, and make sure that everyone's okay. I mean, I know it must be very nerve-wracking for people um, there, you know, without being able to contact people um, in, in the islands that might be felt. But, yeah, let's cross our fingers and hope they're, they're safe and sound <laughs> <laughs> and it was too deep to do any damage. Yes. <laughs> um, Marion, always a pleasure to have you on Pacific Beach. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Marlo Marion, that was Tongan journalist Marion Kupu. Uh, she was chatting to us about the opening, or the soft launch, I should say, of the U.S. Embassy there in capital Nukulufa. Pacific Beat. 
And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beach, reminding you of our top story. Papua New Guinea's foreign minister, Justin Kachenko, has hit back at critics, accusing his daughter of being tone deaf and offensive after posting a TikTok of herself on a lavish government-funded trip to London for the king's coronation. I call them primitive animals because they are. And she has done the right thing for her country to travel with her father, representing this country. That was Foreign Minister Justin Tichenko and the end of Pacific Beat. Thank you very much.